Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Capital Club Radio, brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance. Please welcome your host, chairman, and CEO, Michael Flock. Good morning, and welcome to Capital Club Radio. Uh, we're do- delighted today to interview and talk with uh, one of the celebrities in the <laughs> the Atlanta journalism uh, circles, uh, David Rubinger, who's currently the publisher of the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Uh, I think it's probably the leading commercial journal in Atlanta and one of the most successful in the United States. Uh, David worked here, interestingly, in as editor in the 1990s. Um, but prior to becoming publisher, David had founded his own PR firm. Uh, he ran corporate communications for Equifax and headed the corporate uh, media relations for Ketchum, a global public relations agency. But when David was running his own PR firm, and that's when I met David, uh, he focused on RMA, the Receivables Management Association uh, of America, and uh, that was in the credit and collections industry. He currently serves on the boards of uh, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau, and Emory University's Center for Ethics. So we're thrilled to have David here today. Oh, thanks, Michael. In fact, good, good, to think, see, good to see you again after all these years. Yeah, it's been a decade, and I think, uh, gosh, time flies. I, I think we were playing golf at the Atlanta Country Club. It was part of a, a conference, I think. Right. And uh, I just remember, David, though, I think you were a little stingy with the mulligans. I think it was very true. So I think we need to have another round. That sounds, sounds I think we both have probably improved since then. The pandemic did a lot for everyone's golf game. A little bit, yeah. There you go. So anyway, one of the objectives on our podcast is to try to connect the dots of our guests um, to see the intersection between the personal and professional journeys that we're on and what were some of the lessons learned and some of the maybe challenges that we met along the way. So David, let's start at the beginning if you were to write an autobiography, how would you start it? Uh, well, I, I, the autobiography would, would talk about um, family. It would talk about the ability to uh, connect with um, not only people in the business community, but people in my broader communities and how those, it was those relationships and being surrounded by really smart, interesting people helped move me along in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, I've, it, when I knew that I was going to get a question about my autobiography, you know, you, you tend to think back on what happened right. in your life. Right. And it was just, it's been a really interesting, uh, a lot of interesting twists and turns in my life that have led me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how the journey's gone so far. So as a kid though, I mean, what were your passions? Uh, I mean, were you really into, you know, public relations? You probably... I wasn't into public relations. No, not that, I, I, public that. relations was an outgrowth of journalism for me. So, right. so l- little background is I grew up in Manhattan. Um, okay. My parents were, uh, you know, voracious readers of the New York Times. So okay. every morning the New York Times would come to the door, and uh, you know, as a kid I would grab it and go and, and go immediately to the sports pages and, and flip through it. And in the right. weekends I was always excited to get the New York Daily News to read the comics and all those mm-hmm. things. But there was something about um, reading the newspaper that, that gave me the sense of understanding what was going on in the world. Um, I was also a kid who grew up during the age of Watergate. Right. So for me, um, uh, as a, I was about, let's see, eight, nine years old at the time, yeah. um, watching what was going on in our government 
and how the media interacted with the political system to me, even at a young age like that sort of fascinated me because it's where I was getting all my information from, whether it was from television or from reading a newspaper. And that sort of brought, was my first experience in understanding the role of the media in our greater society in, in terms of business and politics and sports and the role that media played in it. And that's been sort of the string that's, that's, been a constant all the way through is the role that media plays in helping us understand what's going on in the world. And, and today, of course, it's gotten so much more complicated. Right. And do you feel it's gotten a little more political since those days or? I think it's just as political as it was back then. I think what's different is the delivery mechanisms have gotten to be so okay. much more okay. complicated. Okay. Back then you had three networks, right? You had certain newspapers. It right. was a very, static sort of way of getting your information. You chose the information you wanted. You were either a Cronkite guy, a chancellor guy, a Brinkley guy. Mm -hmm. You had your place that you went now because of the internet and the ability for podcasts and blogs and all these other ways of delivering information. There are so many divergent channels, channels and ways of getting information and opinions that um, it is it has really blown things out. But I think that's always been part of American society. I mean, you go back to uh, the seven, 18th century, okay? In the 1700s, you had your town criers mm-hmm. in the park. And there'd be a town crier on every corner yelling out their political opinion. Mm-hmm. That's no different right. than the blogging that we have going on today. Okay. So it's just a question of how we're delivering the information. Human beings haven't changed much. We just have all found new ways to sort of get our messages out in the and the megaphones have changed a lot. So it's the media that changed. The media, yeah, the media and the delivery mechanism and the delivery has of changed. That media. Yeah, right. But it that's that was the start. It was you know being born and raised in New York City. Right. Uh, was also a really fertile playground for <laughs> for a young kid to right. to grow. Right. And get different interests. And I was always fascinated by people and meeting people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, it was just it was just a fun it was a fun way to sort of to to lead to my craft but growing up then did you have any dreams of running a newspaper did you did you edit your college yearbook or no i wanted to be i wanted to be tom siever i wanted to be uh, a starting pitcher for the new york mets that okay. was my dream as okay. a kid there was there was there was nothing there Things was no with- and then after that once i took up tennis i thought i could parallel john McEnroe because he went to my high school so i thought oh i could okay. be like john McEnroe. Okay. and i realized i couldn't do that i moved on right um, the, the bug for journalism really came in high school. Mm-hmm. I was an editor of, of, of my high school paper. And then in college, I was the editor of the college paper. Okay. So and you did start then. I yeah. did. Yeah. I did. And But to me, journalism and writing and working at the newspaper was a way for me to improve my communication and writing skills right. in class. I was an okay writer. Uh-huh. I was not a great writer. But I had an English professor say, say, you know, you really should go to the newspaper because at the newspaper, you're going to have to learn to write in succinct fashion to get your point across. And I think that will help you when you're writing your thesis and your term papers. And it really changed my ability to communicate, Uh Uh, writing in what they call the inverted pyramid form of of writing the most important facts down to the bottom. So, yeah, I was the editor of the college paper. I interned. Uh, I was in Hartford, Connecticut, at Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I then worked at the Hartford Current, which was the daily newspaper in Hartford, right. for two right. years while I was in college, right. and got to learn a newsroom. And that got the bug. And I thought I was going to be a political writer because that's what I was. My interests were primarily politics, but I also knew that um, I wanted to move back to New York City 
So getting a job covering New York politics is not what you get when you come out of college. What was an opportunity for me in the late 80s was to be a business writer. So I was able to start off my career in New York as a business writer uh, and editor for McGraw-Hill, which back then was the grand poobah of business journalism with all the trade publications they had and Standard & Poor's. So uh, that's where I got my start, covering the markets for for McGraw-Hill, and it was a great way for me to learn the business. And I say that for the last 30-some-odd years that I've been in business – uh, it's been a constant MBA. I've, d- I've never gotten an MBA because uh-huh. all I'm doing is talking to people like you mm-hmm. who have taught me things. They've taught me things about business and about leadership and about finance and about marketing. So I have always feel like I'm constantly getting an education from all the interesting people I get to run across. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, that you got into networking, developing relationships. And what's interesting then is you kind of transitioned into to media and writing editing, which is another kind of channel to developing that network. Um, so do you find that still the case now that you're a publisher? I, I don't edit and, and anymore. write as much as I used to. Right. I hope to get back to it at some point. Matter of fact, I've been thinking, I've been working on some ideas that I'd like to have be right. part of the publication. I'm now running the business. Right. And by running the business, that means um, editorial reports to me, right. advertising reports to me, right. our events program r- reports right. into us, our circulation, anything having to do with the business is my responsibility. That's your CEO, essentially. Uh, of, yeah. of, but, but part of a big company, uh, Atlanta Business Chronicle is one of 44 business journals owned by American City Business Journals, okay. headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. They, in turn, are owned by Advanced Publishing, which is the Newhouse family. Mm-hmm. So we're part of a media organization. Mm-hmm. Atlanta is the the largest business journal in the company. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of eyeballs are looking at Atlanta from our company to see how we do. Okay. And, so you set the uh, you set the tone, you set the pace, the vision and we try we try company. to. We okay. try to. I mean I, I think it's um it's I think there are a lot of really talented uh publishers and editors uh, and executives in this company who help us figure out what's the next great thing for us to do. But this business model is really interesting because I feel like it's a laboratory. It's a nonstop laboratory. We're always experimenting about mm-hmm. what you as a reader mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. from what we produce. Mm-hmm. And it changes every day. And we monitor it every day to make sure we understand what is the type of content that, that our reader is looking for so that they can grow their business, mm-hmm. grow themselves personally mm-hmm. and it's fascinating that over the 30 years that I've been around Atlanta Business Chronicle in different ways, mm-hmm. shapes, and forms, our mission hasn't changed. What is that mission? The mission is to help a business or a business person grow. Okay. That's what it's all about. Okay. It's all about what do we, what kind of information can we give you, Michael Flock, right. to help Flock become right. a better company? Right. Um, uh, it might be a real estate story. It might be a healthcare story. It might be a technology story. But if it's got information in there that you feel mm-hmm. you can take away from and say, that's going to help me do my job better, then we've achieved our goal. Okay. And don't you have two sets of clients, customers? One is the consumer, right? The reader. Right. And then also the the PR executives of the firms also that you're trying to help promote. Is, is that right or not? Um, not not. Really, I, I cater to my reader okay. first and foremost okay. because the reader 
is my ultimate consumer. Right. My advertiser right. wants to be a part of our medium right. because we attract those readers. Right. So it's very important for me to keep uh, – use the term church and state, but you've got to okay. keep those two things divided right. to maintain the integrity right. of the product so that advertisers feel like they're, they're not right. – that there's a, that there's a good, the chronicle because you've got a vast base of readers who are looking are, for independent right. information. Okay. So, um, so the, 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 the biggest issue is and a lot in the media, it's happened all over the country mm-hmm. is that, um, oftentimes the media is paid play in easier words. Um, in order for you get into the publication as a subject of an article, mm-hmm. you have to buy an adver- you have to buy advertising. Right. We don't work that way mm-hmm. because our reader is too sophisticated and they know they can tell when something is simply a pay to play right. exercise. We have sponsored content. You can mm-hmm. buy something and put content in, but if it's a story written by one of our writers or editors, mm-hmm. it is an independent piece mm-hmm. that is not influenced by our advertisers because mm-hmm. that's what good journalism is. Let's jump now to sure. the Receivables Management Association, yeah. uh, where you were the kind of head of media communications. Yeah. And many of our listeners to the uh, Flock podcast are from that industry. Hi, everybody. I miss you. <laughs> um, you were there in what? the So I, about 10 I, years ago? I left yeah. Equifax in 2008. And from 2008 to 2015, I had my own firm. Right. And one of my first clients was it was then known as DBA International now right. it's RMA International right. and I was brought in to help um help position the industry with uh business media around you know the various issues I helped helped tell all the positive stories about what was going on in the debt buying industry uh I also tried to explain that there were good actors and bad actors in any industry right. and Oftentimes the media would focus on the bad actors right. and it was my job to help bring them back to the important, the important role that debt buyers right. and debt collectors paid in our credit system. Yep. And luckily coming out of Equifax, I had the knowledge base of understanding how our credit economy worked. Right. Um, Cause most PR professionals didn't have that base. So I was able to help articulate that pretty well with um, the wall street journal and, and, and Bloomberg and other major outlets to help tell the story. They didn't always buy the story, mm-hmm. but they – at least I felt like I was a credible voice in helping explain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's difficult because that industry, I think, has a mixed reputation, to put it nicely. Um, how did you then, as head of media communications, position uh, the receivables management industry to the um, to the you know the broader media? Because it's not easy. It has a stigma. I don't think it's always fair. But in the media world that you were working in, how, how did you position it? What was How did you brand it? How did you provide kind of the thought leadership behind the media communications that you were managing? Well, um, I, frankly, I listened very carefully to you and other people who were the, on the board of DBA mm-hmm. International at the time. I listened to people like Barb Sinsley and Bob Belair and – Rich Monroe and mm-hmm. Stacy Schechter and all these people who lived in this industry. And I paid very close attention to what, um, how they explained the value proposition 
not just to a business, but to the consumer about why it was important to have uh, bad debt be bought and then resold because right. it put money back into the economy so that they could, that, that right. banks could keep on lending. Right. Otherwise right. banks, if they just write it off, they're going to increase the cost of, of, of the credit and it becomes more expensive for the consumer in the long sure. run. Sure. That's a hard story to tell because it seems very removed. I think for most of us, we just think that debt collectors are bad actors, but at the end of the day, if those debts aren't somehow dealt with, the bank can't make the loans they made before mm-hmm. and they end up, lending less. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it was, it was always a uphill battle. Um, we were never going to win the war. Right. Uh, I think you just had a, you just had to win little battles one by one. Mm-hmm. The key was to take the personality out of it and really try to explain the structure. Mm-hmm. Because once you got into the personality piece, cause it was very easy to bring in who the bad actors were. Right. There are a right. lot of people who, right. who, who thrive on the emotion of, of, of the negativity around right. debt right. collecting. Uh, the key was to say this is part of the process. It's part of our right. economic system, right. and it's not illegal. It is strictly no. what what needs to be done so we keep our credit economy going. Right. And today we're looking at a credit economy that's as healthy as it's been in my lifetime. Yep. Yep. And um, you know there seems like all that credit education that's gone on over the last twenty years is finally starting to right. take root, and people right. are starting to. Right. Pay their bills on time. Right. Um, so uh, I think we're in a better place than we were back in 2008. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And, you know, we laugh. We say that uh, collections, people in collections uh, aren't really doing God's work. And uh, in the past, I think that many of the cowboys in the industry were the ones that drove the headlines. And then the CFPB was created. And I think that kind of changed the, um, I think, actually made it more stable, more uh, ethical and. I mean, at the time, the CFPB, by your industry and right. by my prior employer, Equifax, it, it, no one was very excited about having a, uh, having a, a be regulated. Right. No one in, in, in enterprise wants to be regulated. Right. But sometimes a little regulation goes a long way as long mm-hmm. as it's properly monitored. Mm-hmm. And CFPB, despite some of, the, some of the sword battles that went on within the industry, right. uh, probably helped stabilize things a little bit. Right. Um, I'm sure there could be more arguments made on both sides of that. But uh, it, it, it definitely uh, helped stabilize the ship quite a bit. And listen, the, the U.S. credit economy is a fascinating story in yeah. and of itself. Um, the fact that we can have this ability for consumers to be able to access credit on a credit card and be able to um, live the lifestyles they want mm-hmm. uh, within within reason mm-hmm. uh, has been a very interesting part of our overall economic system. That I don't think we get enough. I don't think there's enough credit given to how right. how successful it's been at making America what it is today. Yeah. Definitely. So, David, you've kind of moved back and forth between corporate entrepreneur because you had your own PR firm, um, you know, but you were in, working with corporations, obviously Equifax, and then Ketchum. Um, so, what are some of the lessons learned, and how was that transition that you made? Because it was, you know, entrepreneur, corporate, right. entrepreneur. How, yeah. What lessons learned were there, and were they the same, right, or different? Um, lessons learned. So. First of all, the first step was leaving journalism to go into public relations. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a big step in my life because when you're a journalist, you maintain this degree of independence. When you move to public relations, you're now being paid by corporations to help represent their interests. It's a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. So I had to wrap my head around that first. Mm-hmm. And that was a pretty comfortable transition for me because I felt like it was, again, as I said earlier on, that it's all about 
I love my continuing education process. Mm-hmm. I felt like I'd learned as much as I could learn as a journalist. And now I was going to learn as a practitioner of, mm-hmm. of right. uh, PR consulting. It was my next step in the journey. The movement to Equifax was, was born out of the fact that working at Ketchum, I was becoming an, sort of a minor league expert in the world of the credit economy. So now I could grow more by becoming a, having an expertise, understanding how a credit report is built, understanding how disputes are done, understanding how money is lent and what shows up on a credit report. Not many people know that. So I felt like, again, it was part of my education process. Right. right. Then I went on my own, which was exciting. So I'd never run my own business before. And that was just an exciting time in my life. My kids were young. Mm-hmm. My wife, uh, Hetty, is a successful partner at a major law firm here in town. Right. It was an opportunity for me to be home more with my kids and grow a business, uh-huh. which was so exciting. Mm-hmm. I just loved that. And I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my career. Uh-huh. I really didn't see moving on from that. But in 2015, Atlanta Business Chronicle uh, I reconnected with Atlanta Business Chronicle when my predecessor, Ed Baker, retired, and they were looking for a publisher. And I didn't know if I wanted to get into, back into the media business. It had changed so radically. I mean, when I was there originally, it was a newspaper. Right. Now it's now it's this multimedia platform. Uh, the role of the publisher has changed. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really sure I wanted to come back, but I looked you know, in the mirror, looked deep down in my own heart and realized that the Business Chronicle was such a big part of who I was when I moved to Atlanta back then, way back then that coming back to it really felt natural. And it's been a great five years. It's really been fascinating. Uh, again, part of my – the education continues. It just keeps on going. It, it hasn't stopped. And uh, you know, I'm excited every day that I go to work there. You know, a lot of our uh, audience um – you know, they've been in receivables management. Some of them, of course, are entrepreneurs. And their lives, their journeys through their careers is never a straight line. There's always bumps along the road. Can you share with us some of some of your adverse experiences and how you dealt with them? Sure. Um, I, some, of the, some of the – the adverse experience that sticks with me the most is more about a life and death thing than anything else. Um, back in 1992, uh, a reporter who I worked with at the Business Chronicle passed away in a car accident. And I was, you know, at that point, 26, 27 years old, and I felt so on top of the world. Her death and what it, the impact it had on me and everybody else at the Business Chronicle at the time was so powerful that it really changed my outlook on, uh, you know, the seize the day mentality of mm-hmm. like, you know, it's life is too precious. Mm-hmm. You really need to stay focused on what's most important in your life mm-hmm. and, and stay and keep driving in that direction mm-hmm. and don't take any of it for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that to me was something we all like carpe diem. It was definitely a yeah. carpe diem moment for, yeah. for me. And, and as that one has stuck with me mm-hmm. throughout my life uh, in terms of other challenges, you know, learning to control what you can control. And when I, when I was working at Equifax, I had to deal with, some awful crises for the company and knowing that maintaining my own emotional equilibrium, mm-hmm. um, understanding that I can only control as much as I can. I can't necessarily change the way everyone looks at this company and doesn't, mm-hmm. but stay focused on short term objectives on quick wins. Mm-hmm. Um, 
th- those are the kind of things. Uh, other other bumps along the road. Um, there haven't been too many bumps. I think maintaining the work life balance with my having four growing four children at home and being a good husband while mm-hmm. trying to also be a, a successful business person right. has always been paramount to me because I've seen too many friends uh, have struggles in their personal relationships. Uh-huh. I've got to put that piece first always. Cause they're going to be, no matter what happens in my career, they're always going to be with me to the end of the day. Um, that's always been the most critical piece is to make sure that I keep that part as smooth as possible all the way through. You know, as we get to know people, I think one indication of who they are, uh, what their passions are is revealed in the books that they like to read. What is one of your favorite books you've read in the last few few years? So, um, well, of the last few years, I was going to say it was oh. on my nightstand right now. Okay. Um, right. So there's a book on my nightstand right now that I just got. Um, it's called A Course Called America by Tom Coyne. And it's a series of vignettes um, about golf courses all over the United States. Mm-hmm. I'm a, we're both golfers. Yeah, we're we both, both enjoy golfers, golf. Yeah. And to me, it's my great escape. It's right. a way for me to sort of – Relax, relax, yeah. and and read interesting stories about mm-hmm. about interesting places. So it's less about the golf and more about the communities where the golf courses are. Mm-hmm. And it's really been a fun read. And what I like about it is when I go, I read all day. And when I go and I get in bed at night and I read, I, I only like to read for. I like reading short little snippets. I don't get right. caught up in an entire yeah. book at night. Right. So that's been a fun one. Um, I, I usually am a, a nonfiction person. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to since I was a kid, the type of reading I always liked to do was biographies of of interesting and famous people. Um, it gets back to your networking. It, well, it, goes, way, it gets back to with those are the kind of stories you don't know, I like but write. you're networking kind of right. indirectly. Yeah. Right. So if I'm reading a book about you know Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt, right. or uh, I remember as a kid reading a book about W. C. Handy, the trumpet player. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this little these are books that I always enjoyed reading because I always got to put myself in the shoes of other famous people. Right. I think that was some, one of the things that glommed me onto journalism because I just loved reading these stories about how other people tick. Right. Well, we started our conversation this morning with um, how you'd start your autobiography. Mm-hmm. How would you write your obituary? Oh my gosh. How depressing. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Actually, it's really funny because I find that the, the, the people who get to write the obituaries for the New York Times have some of the most fascinating jobs in, in the journalism business, to be candid. So um, the obituary – I hope the obituary would, would talk about um, uh, this – a lot about this path where, where journalism was played such an interesting path. The New Yorker in me, now the Southerner in me. Uh, but really the fact that Hetty and I have been able to – raised four amazing kids who are all doing great in life. Uh, to me, it just feels really good because that's the stuff you can't ever predict, right? You, you hope it's going to work out, but it uh, you can't ever predict that piece. So, yeah, New Yorker turned Southerner, journalist turned entrepreneur, turned publisher, dad, husband, uh, lover of Atlanta. Atlanta's a great city. That's interesting for someone who grew up in Manhattan. Right. Well, I still love Manhattan. Manhattan's yeah. a great city, and I love going back to visit. My mom still lives there, and I got okay. a son who lives there now. Right. But um, I've really, I've really adopted Atlanta in a special way. It, it, it's got a certain quality to it. Um, uh, I've gotten to see, and you're you're in the same boat as I am. I mean, since we moved here, to see how much Atlanta has evolved mm-hmm. as a city, 
um, especially since the Olympics, how diverse it's become, how progressive it's become, how it has really glommed onto its, its roots as you know, a civil rights cornerstone for America, um, how much we still have to learn. Um, remember this education process, it's not just about business. Right. I think we're all having to learn a lot about our own personal education, about dealing with issues of equity and race. The business Chronicle has changed tremendously in the last year in addressing the issues of equity and race. And I'm so proud of what the newsroom and what we've all done to try to take care of those things. Because 30 years ago, you would rarely see women or minorities in the business Chronicle. Right. We were a white man's publication. It, right. There's no question about it. And now there's been this intentional look at making sure we are really representing the entire business community, not simply the ones of the majority uh, that live in Buckhead mm-hmm. uh, in 30327. We, we've really tried to get ourselves diversified there. And um, is, does that make the most amount of business sense? Mm-hmm. Maybe not short term, mm-hmm. but long term it does because that's how our city is evolving. Mm-hmm. So I've really had fun watching the patchwork of Atlanta evolve over time. And it's, it's really, uh, it's been fun. It's been really fun to be a part of that. So finally, David, what's next for you? What are the next steps for David Rubiger? Right now, next step is making it through this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to make sure that you know we, we finish strong. My, my job is to keep my team focused on creating the best content, delivering on our numbers for our company. Uh, I think we're at a – because we repositioned ourselves in such an interesting way, I think the Business Chronicle has an opportunity for a lot of really cool growth in the next 24 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking at that's my horizon right now is really the next two years to see where the Chronicle can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me personally, um, we're adapting to being empty nesters. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids, my, my daughter's a lawyer. My son's in advertising in New York and I've got twins in college. My wife and I get to know each other again as, as empty nesters looking forward to, uh, to, to uh, this next stage of life. Uh-huh. We both have thriving careers. So I don't think any of us are looking to hang it up anytime soon. Uh, and having the Chronicle as, as my base to do all these things is, is I think the best job in journalism. Uh, I don't think you can find a better place to be in terms of being able to be a part of a community, contribute in your own way and still have a fun career. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's wonderful, David. Well, thank you for sharing this very thoughtful journey that you've been on in the world of journalism, both how it is today and what I think you think it will become tomorrow, which I think you're going to have a big impact on here in Atlanta. So really appreciate you participating with us today. And congratulations to you. I mean, it's really been fun to see flock do as well as it has and how you've thrived through all this craziness that's gone on wow. in the yep. marketplace. Um, you, you really have a, a special place in the civil management business that a lot of that is very unique and you've really done a great job building your own brand, even just doing a podcast for mm-hmm. God's sake. It's not the kind of thing that's the norm. You're willing to always take it in a different direction. And that um, that's what I, I told people when I had my firm, that that's what you need to do. You need to find ways to help differentiate yourself so that yep. people remember you remember what you stand for. Yep. And that's great for you and yep. for your company. So uh, congratulations to you. Well, thank success. you. I mean, I'm a believer in branding and marketing as a differentiator. So anyway, David, thanks again for being with us on Capital Club Radio today. I think the lessons learned that you've shared with us along your wonderful journey in uh, journalism uh, have been outstanding, fascinating, and uh, 
So we look forward to David's next uh, uh, show with us. I think we'll have some more tales of his success and challenges in the in the world of journalism here in Atlanta. Great. Read Atlanta Business Chronicle while you're at it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thank David. You. Thank you for joining Michael Flock and his guests on the Capital Club Radio Show. For more information on future interviews, please visit us at flockfinance.com. This program is brought to you by Flock Specialty Finance, where clients are provided knowledge and insights to grow their business in complex and risky markets. Flock is more than a transaction.